Well, let's pray, and we're going to begin our class on parenting the early years. So let's ask God's blessing. Father, we thank you for the time we have to gather, to study together. We're grateful for the way that you love us and the way that you enable us to do your will. And Lord, I pray that you would just send forth again the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, guard us from error, especially me in the things that I say. And Lord, prepare us, help us to understand the themes and the, and the commandments and the stipulations and the guidance and wisdom that's in the, in the Bible on parenting, that you would help us to prepare our children for eternity and for fruitful living in this world. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to pick up uh, the survey from last time and then continue on. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned last time how much there is a desire in all parenting for the answers to practical questions, practical solutions, but that's especially true in the early years. There's so many physical, practical things, and parents are doing it often for the first time, and so they very much feel the need for mature wisdom, guidance from people who have been through it before. And, you know, in a healthy church, you know, there's those kind of connections that happen between women and older women, especially. People are a little further up the road, the Titus II woman that, that can come alongside, and I want to encourage that. There's also, in the day and age we live in, there's just a plethora of electronic um, resources. Some of them are even good and helpful. So that's the problem, is you have to be able to sift through the weed and the chaff and find some sources you can trust. That's not really going to be, you know, my wheelhouse or my purpose here um, this week and over the next number of weeks. My desire is to give biblical theological themes and make those themes as practical as I can to give you kind of the rules of the road for navigation, uh, for parenting in the early years. And so that's our desire. So we picked up that last week and, and did some of this, but let's do some review. The central issue, the greatest issue of every aspect of human life is the glory of God. And something that we've learned as Christians, we understand uh, that God created the universe for his own glory and that we are going to a world, the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem, that will be illuminated by nothing but God's glory. And so we're going to spend eternity learning and displaying the glory of God, and that that's incredible. Um, remember last week I defined the glory of God as the radiant display of the attributes of God. And so while all that may seem an ethereal or faraway theological principle, it isn't. It actually can and should come into your mind at every moment of parenting. Every moment. When the, when the baby's born, it's born for the glory of God. And when you have an opportunity to interact with this little one, you realize that little one was created in the image of God for the glory of God. And you are a parent for the glory of God. So again, that's not ethereal and, and just theological and not practical, like ivory tower theology. It's like, how can I drink in, first of all, God's attributes here? And secondly, how can I put God on display? How can I be the light of the world like Jesus said he was the light of the world? It's kind of interesting. Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He also says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. We know that they're not two different lights. And so we are the light of Christ who is the light of the world. We are able to put Christ on display. So my desire when I'm parenting is how can I put the attributes of God on display? And I tell you, one of the things you need in parenting what you need continually is you need, you need to breathe, right? You need hope. You need peace. You need a sense of confidence. God is at work. It's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. God's here. And, and when you kind of recenter always on the central theme of the Bible, the central theme of your existence, the glory of God, it's so helpful. It's so helpful. And for me, that's exciting. Now, when we were, we had little ones, and, and we had a, a long extended stair step. You know, Nathaniel's 29, Daphne's 14, and we had five kids. So, you know, kind of every three or four years, we'd have another child, which is a bit odd, but that's just how it was for us. And um, 
but when they were young, uh, we used a catechism that was based on the Westminster um, Catechism, which itself based on the Westminster Confession of Faith. But it was, it was the Baptist version of it, and that was really helpful. And you can get them, um, so just track it down. What is a catechism? Catechism is a teaching tool that uh, works by memorized questions and answers. So you're not, you're not freelancing, you're not, well, I don't know. Uh, yesterday I said such, a, that's not what the catechism is about. All right, the catechism is there's an, a question you've heard more times than you can count, and there's an answer that you've given every time to that question. And then all my kids remember the first five or six questions because we went over them again and again, and then fewer and fewer as time went on because we got busy and we didn't finish the catechism. It was like 146 questions. Um, but, you know, some of you will be amazing and you'll finish all 146, and that's helpful. But um, it begins this way. Who made you? Answer, God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. And pretty soon you're into the law and you're talking about the law. So it's very, very helpful. Also, Jonathan Edwards, The End for Which God Created the World. Very, his writings are difficult, and there's no doubt about it. But he just does a great job on talking about what an end is, what is a purpose, a purposeful being like God. He had a reason why. It wasn't like, gee, I don't know what to do in the Trinity. Oh, I know. Let's make things. It wasn't like that. He had a definite purpose for why he created the heavens and the earth. And it was to put himself on display, especially for his own pleasure, yes, but also to give us pleasure. And it's really the same pleasure, himself, his own perfection within the Trinity. The Father delights in the Son, the Son, Father and Son delight in the Spirit. There's just the, a relational delight that goes on. And he just out of his fullness, not emptiness, wanted to share himself. And so then he creates us with capacity, with the ability to know him, the ability, and then we delight in him. And we're going to spend eternity in heaven doing that, delighting in God. So when we think about that, you know, and you're going you're gonna to find this. When your kids begin to talk and they start to ask questions, you're going to just say, why, why, why? I mean, if you never had that chain of, you know, questions, just know where it ends theologically. I'm just already telling you where the final end of the wide, you know, for God's glory. That's where you're going to end up, all right? That's the final end. He did it for his own glory, you know? And you're just going to camp there. If they keep asking for, his, for God's glory, it's because of God's glory. That's, it's like, all right, I get it, God's glory. And then they'll be distracted by the way, distraction's good. You'll, you'll find that out. Hey, look, shiny. <laughs> and then, they, oh, <laughs> and then they, they start doing other things. But, you know, that's it. Everything is made for God's own pleasure, for his own, own glory. Um, Romans 11.36, one of the most important verses in the Bible. Someone read this for us. I know, I know it's early, friends. I just want to commend you for being, just for being here. <laughs> All right? Daylight saving time, whatever. You pay the price on one night slash morning, but then you get the benefit for the next six months. So it's pretty awesome. Someone read Romans eleven thirty six. All right. So you could just put your own child's name in that. You know, each of my kids are from him. They continue to exist through him and they are going back to him. So are you. You are from him, through him and to him. And the to him part, I tend to primarily think of judgment day. I think of accountability, that I'm going to give an account. So just know that, that you're going to give an account for your parenting, that, that he's over you. It, te t it helps you to not be tyrannical and overbearing in your authority. You should wield it. You should use it. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But just knowing that you're going back to God and you're going to give him an account, and those kids don't belong really to you ultimately. They're not yours to do with as you please. Although I will say that like when my girls were little, they were six, seven years old, I used to like reach out and kind of twirl my fingers in their hair and they didn't mind too much, but they're looking at me and, and it's like, I paid for it, all right? <laughs> they're like, no, it's my hair. And it's like, well, it's kind of mine too and all that sort of stuff. Well, no, Andy, it's not. It belongs to them and it belongs to God. So whatever. It was just a sweet moment. That's all that happened. I just would touch them, especially Jenny's hair. It was golden and curly and I love, used to love to do that. So all things come from God and they go back to God. Humanity is created to display the glory of God. Isaiah 43, interestingly, the only verse in the entire Bible that directly verbally links our existence as humans to the glory of God. There is no other verse. I find that interesting since I'm saying here, this is the central reason. 
So you would think there would be 136 verses that teach it, but there's only one that openly links glory, the word glory, with the reason why we exist. But God created us for his glory. He's redeemed us for his glory. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 teaches it. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So that's the statement. Uh, humanity is also created to know God's glory. Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What that means is, as you educate your children, and you're going to be educating them on everything, you're going to prepare. I'm not saying you're definitely going to homeschool. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is it's a, a lavish education that parents give their children. The central lesson is the glory of God. You're going to teach them to see God in everything. Um, that, you know... <laughs> Like even in mathematics, I remember one of my girls hated mathematics. I remember we were going through that. And we did homeschool. And I said to her, um, I said, math is your friend. And she said to me, Dad, math hates me. <laughs> it's like math is hunting me down to kill me. <laughs> it's, better. it's like, no, but math is a reflection of the orderly mind of God, you know? It's really interesting, the number of verses in the Old Testament in which there is arithmetic. There's actually adding of the number of tribes, you know, the 12 tribes, they each have a sub-number, and then it, and it adds up. Any of you really geeky people, you want to find out if the math was done right, get your calculator and add up the numbers on the genealogies in the 12 tribes. It's pretty cool. Uh, humanity also redeemed for the praise of God's glory. It's all by way of review, so we need to keep moving. God's vision for parenting, all right? God created one man from the dust of the earth, Adam. He created Eve from a, a part of Adam's body. We know this story in Genesis 2. Before that, though, we get an overarching purpose statement. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Very important verses. So many, so many truths about parenting come from that. One of the things I say definitely in, in premarital counseling is I talk about, about marriage roles, the, the male role, the, the man's role and the woman's role are very important, but they're not, really, they're not covered until chapter 2. Chapter 1 is really very egalitarian in the way it's written. You really don't see gender-based roles. You, just, you do see gender, but you don't see the roles laid out there. And so what I tend to say is that, that what we have in common as human beings is more important than the differences that we have in, in biblically ordained gender-based roles of being husband, father, wife, mother, etc. Those things are important. But the fact that my wife is in the image of God is more important than that she's a woman, although it is important that she's a woman. The fact that I'm in the image of God is more important than that I'm a man. Well, that mentality is the same as true with your children. It's more important that they are in the image of God than that they are, let's say, under your authority. That you have the, and, and it's important that you command them. That is important, but it's not as important as the fact that they are in the image of God. And it's just an important thing to keep in mind. It's like, well, I'm going to keep remembering that. Well, there, there'll be times that you might be tempted to forget. This child isn't mine. This child is in the image of God. This child is sacred as a human being and really would cut off any sort of abuse that you would ever do as a parent, though we will advocate biblical parental discipline in a few minutes. All right, covenant vision. God has a plan for the salvation of the human race, and that plan it was created in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. And it involved calling a people out, a people for himself. It uh, involves the, uh, the development of the Jewish nation. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant promises made to them, and how Jesus came as the fulfillment of those promises, and how we Gentiles are grafted into those promises, like a wild olive uh, shoot grafted into a cultivated olive tree, the image from uh, Romans 11. So there's this whole story that's going on. It's unfolding. And in the Old Testament, we see the biological aspect of it, and there's a covenantal aspect, and there's a parenting aspect, and many of those, per, uh, those uh, themes and purposes translate very well over to Christian parenting. And so we're going to be quoting freely from Deuteronomy and from other places, even though we're not Jews, 
and we're not in a theocracy, we're not in that time, we're not in the old covenant era, but yet there are still pr parenting principles that are going to be important for us. And this is a beautiful statement here about uh, made to Abraham. Um, can someone read just 1819? should be on your sheet there. All right, I have chosen him, there's election, so that, all right, with the result, you could say purpose or result, but results, but I think purpose as well. God has a purpose here that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. So there's a directing, directing aspect to parenting. The way of the Lord, keeping the way of the Lord is the pattern of his commands and promises, all of those things, a lifestyle of holiness. And so he just uh, uh, calls Abraham to do that so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what, what he has promised him. So this is part of God's purpose, his eternal purpose even. So we could say from this verse, the New Covenant version is that, that Christian parenting is a huge part of God bringing about his purpose in the world. It's a big part of it, massive. The number of people who are genuinely walking with the Lord right now on earth who are significantly influenced by their parent or parents. It's huge. So we'll talk more about that. Multi-generational vision, uh, Psalm 78. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. So that's what you get to do as Christian parents. It's so exciting. You get to tell your children the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. And there is no more praiseworthy deeds than those done by Jesus. You get to tell your kids the miracle stories, walking on water, feeding the 5,000, raising the dead, healing lepers. You get to tell those stories. And you want them, hearing those stories, to come to the conclusion, the reason why the gospel writers wrote, what John clearly tells us, is that they will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing will have life in his name. And you get to be the primary teachers of the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. But you get to tell the Old Testament praiseworthy deeds too, the Red Sea crossing, all of the miracles, things he did with Elijah and Elisha and all that. You get to tell that whole story. It's amazing. We will not hide them from our children. You know when they come into the world, they don't know any of the stories. They don't know any of them. They don't know Jesus. They don't know anything. And you get to pour all that biblical knowledge into them. We will not hide them from our children. Uh, but we're going to teach them, even the future generation, that they will put their trust in God and will not forget his deeds, but keep his commands. That's the ultimate end, that they will trust and obey. Do you see that? Right in that verse. They'll trust and obey. That's the point. Psalm 78. Hezekiah had a short-sighted vision. We don't have to go through it, but he just didn't seem to care about the fact that his descendants would go off as eunuchs in the palace in Babylon. Whatever. As long as it doesn't happen in my life. Yeah, don't do that. All right? Think about your grandkids and great-grandkids and set up godly patterns. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning are the godly patterns that you want to be setting up. All right. Christian vision. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Believe me, we're going to be exegeting that. Not today, but talk about what nurture is, what admonition is, how you blend those things together. That's what we want to do. All right. Now let's talk about big themes. And the most important thing we can do <coughs> this morning is to understand the central purpose, the primary goal of Christian parenting. We've already said it. We'll say it again and again. The salvation of your children. This is the most important purpose of parenting, that your children would find forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he would gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Now that verse, what does that teach you? What's kind of the main idea that Jesus is trying to get across there? in Matthew 16, 26. Yes, salvation. Your soul, any person's soul, because he didn't say who, any human being, man in that case is human, what would it profit a human being if they should in some way gain everything this world had to offer, all the physical stuff, so they were emperor of the world or empress of the world, ruling everything, have it all, and in the end, they forfeit their soul. Now, we need to understand what does that mean? What does it mean to forfeit your soul? So how would you answer it? If somebody's reading this, what, what does that mean to forfeit your soul? Okay, in what sense? Forfeit. Lose it. How, how does that happen? How does one lose their soul in Jesus' language, Darcy? 
Yeah, hearing these dreadful words applied to you. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I do believe that is what Jesus means here. He's the one that said those words. Depart from me, you who are cursed. That's how we hear that in advance. Jesus actually has that written down in the sheep and the goats passage so that we hear and know what it sounds like ahead of time. And we are warned and flee the wrath to come. You want your children to be warned and flee the wrath to come. And you're not the only one that can do the warning, but you, as Christian parents, must do the warning, and you will be, almost certainly, the first to give them that warning. All right? We also want them to know that there's a haven, there's a refuge, there's a place to run to, and that is Jesus. Christ crucified is the refuge. There is a tower that we run to. The righteous run to it and are kept safe. There is an ark we can get on, and we live, and everyone outside the ark dies. There is a city of refuge to which we run, and we can survive there even as sinners. We can find refuge there. There is a place to go to. So many ways to say it. The Bible's full of ways to point to Christ. But you need to do this. It's the most important thing. So, yes, you want to give the world to your kids in some good way. Educate them. Set them up for prosperity. Set them up for success. Educate them. Help them be polished and manner, mannerly and do well at a banquet. You want them to do all that. Play an instrument. Play it really well. Not poorly. Well, you want them to play a sport. Not poorly, but well. You know, and that's all good. Fine. Great. But what would it profit if your child should gain all that and lose their own soul? That's all I'm saying. So the central, most important purpose of parenting is the salvation of your kids. Uh, and that is the central purpose of Scripture. <clears throat> the central purpose of Scripture is salvation, human salvation. Someone read this for us, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. All right, fantastic. You know what I think is so amazing? As I was preparing this class a few weeks ago, I hadn't really noticed that with so much clarity how the two basic purposes of parenting, you could say there's three or four, whatever, but the, if you really kind of want to keep it simple, is that your kids would be saved and then fruitful or useful. Does that make sense? You could, you just Those are the two, like first and foremost, that they would find forgiveness of sins and go to heaven when they die. And secondly, that they would not waste their lives on earth, but serve the Lord and do good things for his glory. Don't you, doesn't that make sense that those are the two? Do you not see how scripture is given for both? It's given to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then it teaches you, rebukes you, corrects you, and trains, in trains you in righteousness. Let's turn it to the kids. It does all that for them. It teaches them, rebukes them, corrects them, trains them in righteousness. Why? So that they will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's pretty awesome. So the central work of Christian parenting is Bible work. You're just doing Bible work in their souls so that they find salvation in Christ and then you're doing Bible work in their souls so that their sin natures are, are addressed, and they do have them, all right? And you're going to be bumping into their sin natures again and again and again, and even more as the time goes on. You're going to see that, and, and you're going to ha bump into your own. We'll talk about your own in a moment. So the Scripture is sufficient. It's all they need for life and godliness. It's, it's sufficient for that. Everything you need is there so that they will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we'll get, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I, I'm really just celebrating 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 and say, man, it's all there. It's a one-stop shopping for, for your purpose in parenting. Salvation and fruitfulness are thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right, now here's another aspect. Not just their salvation, but yours too. Now, what in the world do you think I might mean by that? All right, so how does sanctification relate to your salvation? It is part. So that you parents would know that God knows and says about you that you're not done being saved. And part of his purpose in bringing these children into your lives is to save your souls. Now, I'm speaking as someone who believes in the sovereignty of God, in salvation, that you cannot be justified one day and not justified a week later. That will never happen. You can't lose your salvation. But I do believe, as Thomas just said, salvation's a process, and justification inevitably leads to sanctification, which is a progressive growth in holiness, which is part of our salvation. And so, you know, I said before, marriage is a workshop of sanctification. I'm really not sure which is more of a workshop, marriage or 
parenting, they're really woven together. <laughs> so a lot of our marriage has been the work of parenting our five kids. So we're not done being saved. First Timothy 4.16 speaks to Timothy as a pastor, how he should develop his spiritual gift of teaching. You know, the public, the public reading of the word, preaching and teaching, all that public aspect of the word. All right, and then he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's quite a statement, isn't it? In the simplistic kind of Baptist evangelical way of thinking that doesn't have a good understanding of sanctification, they're like, what, is Paul saying Timothy wasn't saved? That's exactly what Paul's saying but not in the way you mean. Yes, he's justified. I doubt he walked the aisle or raised a hand. But he is genuinely born again. He is justified, but he's not done being saved. And he should preach every week to the church so that he can be saved. So in a few minutes, I'm going to get up and preach. And part of my purpose will be my own salvation. Does that make sense? I want, in James 4, to not presume on the future to not assume that I'm going to be alive tomorrow. I want to say, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. I want to say that more than I've ever said it before. I want to ask God, is it your will that I do this? Is it your will that I do that? I want to learn how to do that. I'm too independent still. So that's part of my goal, and I'd like you to have the same reactions in your own way. So same thing with parenting. We are parenting to the end that we ourselves will be less selfish, right? Any chance that might be part of your salvation, that you would grow increasingly less selfish? By the way, any of you that are parents, how does parenting make you or should make you be increasingly less selfish? Yeah, you're saying no to yourself. Didn't Jesus say, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow? Any chance you parents are going to be denying yourselves at certain points? As soon as they come home from the hospital, you'll be denying yourself a lot. And the number of times you'll deny yourself over the f subsequent years, more than you can count. More than you can count. And so, for me, fundamentally, I want to be saved. I want, as even now, as I parent my kids, I still have a ways to go. So, anyway, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He orchestrates scenarios, both for your kids' salvation and yours. He orchestrates them. Just when things are going so smoothly, everything's humming in your family, stuff is going to happen. And don't think it's just because of the devil. It isn't just because of the devil. It's because God has a purpose. He wants to bring trials in. He wants to bring circumstances to bring stuff bubbling to the surface. Look at Job, right? Did Job have sin deep in his heart? He did. At the end, he repented in sackcloth and ashes. He covered his mouth. Do you not realize the amount of pressure it took on Job to get that stuff up? That's how godly he was. But it was in there. And when he, a creature, said, if only I could see God face to face, I'd give him a piece of my mind and talk to him about his justice. How do you think God felt about that? Well, you know. God answered him out of a whirlwind and said effectively, where were you when I made the universe? So it's in there. And circumstances come that press on us and it comes bubbling up. It's just there. And then you have to repent. You have to ask forgiveness of your kids. They're going to have to ask forgiveness of you. It's just going to happen. Sanctification. All right. It's primary goal is salvation. Second goal of Christian parenting, maturity. That's, um, you know, part of that you could just say simply is sanctification. It's true. But I want to think it more in, in parenting terms. The movement from immature to mature is very important in, in parenting. Well, you're trying to get them to be mature people. They come in, obviously, into your family immature. One slogan we used a lot as they were getting older is maturity is taking responsibility. So we wanted them to take responsibility for everything in their lives more and more as they got older and older. So you think about when they're really little and you're teaching them to tie their shoes. You do not want to be tying their shoes when they're 28, all right? I don't know that that's happened ever in history, but uh, maybe it has special needs. But I I'm saying you want them to do that. And you know all of those little teaching steps along the way are, are pointing toward them taking responsibility for those things in their own lives. So, and this is part of the pain of parenting. It really is. It's painful because I'm, I'm emotional. I'm very sentimental. 
When they come in, they really are parent focused and dependent on you. And when they move out, they're not as parent focused and dependent. I'm not saying they're completely independent. They're still, they still come back, but they're more independent. And so they, they are saying to you in so many ways, I don't need you anymore, or I don't need you like I used to need you. And that's what you want. And then you cry when it happens, <laughs> like at weddings. Because that's just a decisive break. You're like a new household's being started. It's like, and you cry. And they're not just tears of joy. There are, there's happiness, but it's like tears that are connected with the end of an era. And there was a sweet time that we had where they were so dependent and all that. And, but, but little by little, you're, you know, you're, you're giving, you're, you're parenting yourself out of a job. So they don't, they don't need you anymore. So what is maturity? Luke 2.52 is a great verse. Someone read this uh, for us. I love this verse in terms of what to shoot for. Just gives us broad categories. So there's just different things. Darcy, as you read that, how would you categorize different aspects of maturity there in that verse? Yeah, I mean, wisdom just seems to be intellectual, but also moral, like a combination of knowledge and goodness or virtue. Rather than just knowledge, it is wisdom. So there's a sense of that. And you want your children to know things, but you also want them to be good people. So there's a combination of, of you know, biblical truth, knowledge, factual knowledge, and a delight in it and a moral. So that's wisdom. And then stature is just physical development. But along with that would be all kinds of physical skills. Like I, I never know the difference between occupational therapists and what's the other one? physical therapists. All right. But you're doing a lot of that for your little kids. You're teaching them motions. You're teaching them things with their hands and, and, you know, just little physical motions so that they will grow physically mature. So they are coordinated in their motions. Like when you teach them to walk, it's just so fun to watch them. You know, the word toddler, just picture, I picture toddling or toppling or something. I don't know what, you know, just, you know, going from side to side in a herky jerky motion and then they figure it out and get coordinated, and then they're amazing. They run and walk and all. It's just amazing that there's that physical development. And then in favor with God, that would be just religious development, that they learn when to pray, like before meals, going to church, different things. There's just religious development in favor with God, the things that please God in every respect. And then in favor with people, they're, they're socially developed. They, you know, Jesus had an amazing way with people. He just knew, like there's a, a statement in Proverbs that said that a word aptly spoken is like settings of gold in a, or, or apples of gold in a setting of silver, something like that. Jesus was that way. He just absolutely knew what every situation called for, more than any human being that's ever lived. Sometimes it was quite surprising, <clears throat> like with a Syrophoenician woman where he doesn't even answer her. He is giving her exactly what she needs. Whereas with the, the prostitute that comes in and is pouring, like weeping on his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair, he deals with her very differently than the scribes and Pharisees. It's just every person, he just knew how to deal with them. Now he's God and he knew people perfectly, but we, we want our little ones to be socially developed so that they just handle situations. Like when you have sinned and you've done something wrong to your brother or sister, you need to go and make it right, and this is how you do it. This is how you ask forgiveness. This is how you give forgiveness, etc. So those are those are broad. We we actually use Luke two fifty two as the kids got older to help them set goals. We would take them out as they were older, preteens and teens, take them out for a meal, for their goal setting for the year, and frequently we'd use Luke two fifty two. How do you want to grow in this area, this area, this area, and this area? What are some goals you want to set? All right, so the goal ultimately with sanctification is total conformity to Christ. <clears throat> For those, verse 29, well, let's not skip 28. It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So God's purpose is what? For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then 1 John 2, 6, <clears throat> whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So what we're thinking of uh, with our children is we want them to walk like Jesus. As he was, so we want them to be in the world. You know, they're not to be the savior of the world or die on the cross. I'm not saying that. But in the moral conformity to Christ that God has in mind, 
conform to Christ, like Christ-likeness, that's what we want. And so we want them to grow in full Christ-like maturity. And then the third goal of Christian parenting, as I said a moment ago, is fruitfulness. We already talked about this, but uh, someone read it again. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So man of God, again, is generic, that anthropos word. It's a sense of every person of God, male or female, and I would want to say young or old, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So for me, what that means is we want our young people, our children, as they're growing up, first to be saved. What must we do to work the works of God? This is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. Okay, that's done. They believe in Jesus. Now what? Well, we want them to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We want them, another biblical word would be fruitful. We would like them to be fruitful in their lives, maximally fruitful. You can't be fruitful at all if you're not a Christian. But if you are a Christian, we want you to be maximally fruitful. Someone read John 15, 5. So we want them to bear fruit. We want them to bear much fruit. The whole vine and the branch uh, passage talks about a pruning aspect. So God's going to prune them. He's going to work on them. He's going to get them ready for good works. Or again, Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Isn't that beautiful? So part of it, though, is not just that God prepares the works in advance, but he prepares the workers in advance too, doesn't he? Doesn't he work both sides of the equation? He gets us ready to do the good works and then orchestrates them so we do them. And so you as Christian parents, you get to get your kids ready to do a lifetime of good works. You don't get to control what they are. Like I remember um, talking to my, uh, my oldest, uh, my son, Nathaniel, and he did a very fruitful college ministry with us for a number of years. And I was just asking him about his own vocational choices as he was going forward. And he said, Dad, I'm just, I don't think I'm called to vocational Christian ministry. I want to be a fruitful layman in a church and I want to do good work and I was totally fine with that I, I thought it was great and he is living that out now up in Boston and, and so I'm not trying to fit square peg round hole it's like remember back in the colonial era if your father's a silversmith you're going to be a silversmith apprentice and then a silversmith I'm not doing that I'm not trying to force somebody to whatever God wills I don't know what that is if I could just say one thing, you know how we walked through 1 Corinthians 12 on spiritual gifts? We did a lot of teaching on spiritual gifts, and then we took a break because of more than a building, and then we're, God willing, going to get back. We're going to jump right back in the middle of that spiritual gift section, right in the middle of it. I don't think that young people should be asking, what is my spiritual gift? They are just to learn comprehensively life. They're supposed to be just educated the way everyone means education. They should learn reading, writing, and arithmetic. They should learn history. They should do literature. They should go to school and, uh, you know, homeschool, public school, whatever you do. But they should do that and get more and more mature and just learn what the options are and just do a lot of things because they're immature. And spiritual gifts are a, a refined focus on something that all Christians can do and, and often should do, but it's such a refined skill set that you really have to be mature in the Christian life to say, yeah, that's my gift. All the rest are just general Christian responsibilities, but I'm going to you know, do hospitality or evangelism. I've got, I'm going to have a prayer ministry. I'm called to cross-cultural missions. That's later on. But you can teach them in their teen years what all the gifts are. Define them. Get them active in various things, doing mercy ministry, doing evangelism, doing different things. And then it's going to float to the top. Now, I don't want to make that an absolute rule, but I'm telling you, toddlers can't know spiritual gifts. Just can we all agree? It's like they don't know how to talk. <laughs> Suppose their gift, you know, is teaching. It's a little early to tell because you have to be good at talking. <laughs> okay, so if you can't even talk, well, I don't know. It's too early. So that's all I'm saying. Just general Christian growth and preparation for good works. And you as parents get to orchestrate opportunities to do good works for people. They get to come with you in the car when you bring a meal to a sick person and watch that and see the interactions. And they can say, I want to do that. And actually, we've seen like your teens will do that too. They'll just have the idea. They hear that somebody could use a meal and they make it and they, and they drive and they go bring it. So you don't even know anything about it. It's pretty awesome. And again, we're not saying that they necessarily have that as a spiritual gift. They just feel that's part of the Christian life. All right. So those are the big 
three, bring them to justification, get them going in sanctification, and then prepare them for a life of fruitfulness to the glory of God. That's, those are the big three. Any questions about that before we get into some other themes? It's all clear? Does that sound good? Anything? Someone ask a question. I'm begging. Come on, Darcy, ask me a question. What do you think? How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Glad you asked. But what's so beautiful? If you plug those in your mind, and I would urge you to plug them in, especially by prayer. Praying for your children, the young ones, really young ones, or if you know that your preteens and teens are not converted, just with tears and with, with your heart, praying that they would be justified, that they would come to faith in Christ. If you think they have, etc., praying that they would grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, pray sanctifying prayers for them, and then pray, for, you know, just keeping that in mind. And then a thing you can add in your prayers is, and Lord, teach me what I can do today toward those ends. Orchestrate some situation and make me alert to a role I could play. That might be a, a way to say it. All right, let's go on and talk about some overarching themes. One of the things that I'm going to say here is that it's good, it's very important to get themes, overarching themes, up and running even very early, long before, like let me just say a simple one, the family altar. Uh, a time in the Word, a family time in the Word, and I really believe the Father should lead it, that he sits down, opens the Bible, says we're going to read the Bible, let's pray, etc. That you would like your children, your little ones, as they grow up, to never have known a time that wasn't part of their life. Does that make sense? So it's not like, oh, we're getting near time to do family altar. I don't mean time in the day. I mean, they're seven and a half. Well, there's not like some trigger over. Now it's time to start doing the Bible. Do it when they're in that little bouncy baby holder thing. You know what I'm saying? On the table or whatever you put them in, the little ones, you know, supporting their heads and all that. You guys have, the equipment's amazing. So whatever they're in, Sit down with them and, and open the Bible and your wife's there and, 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 or maybe you've got some, a child that's already along the way, already three and you've got an 18-month or a nine-month-old or a newborn. Do it. So that's what I'm saying. That's just a, a symbol of the whole thing I'm saying in these overarching themes. Try to put all of these, at least in your mind and heart, that we're going to do this in our home early on and just start doing it. And then as they grow into it, it's like, yeah, this is what we do in our family. All right, so um, let's see what they are. First of all, husbands and wives must work together in their God-given roles. So you want to model, as best you can, a healthy Christian marriage in front of your children. And you want each of you to do your roles. You want husbands to be godly fathers and wives to be godly mothers, and you want the husbands and wives to work together in the Ephesians 5 pattern. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, it, for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, etc. Live that out. I know it's high calling, it's hard. But the health of your marriage, how you are together, is huge in terms of the parenting. All right? And so you're already teaching. Like if you're a dad, you're teaching your little girl what kind of man she should marry someday, um, et cetera. If you've got a little boy, you're teaching him how, how to be that kind of a husband and father. And then flip the whole thing around. If you're a, a woman, you're teaching your daughter how to be a godly wife and mother, or, or you're teaching your son what kind of woman he should marry someday. Just putting that on display. Okay? So just fathers are to model a Christ-like servant leadership in the home. There should be that initiative. That's why I say the simplest thing you can do is with the family devotions you lead out. It's your voice, voice that says it's time for family devotion. It's your voice. It doesn't mean you have to read the Bible every time. As they get older, a lot of families have people take parts, do different things. There's a lot of different approaches. And I support that. But, but everyone knows this is the Father's leadership ministry to the family. That's a simple one, but it should be on display in, in everything. All right? Um, so, secondly... Oh, one other thing. Toward children, the husband and wife must present a united front. The children taught to obey both the father and the mother. Okay. Let me tell you something. Kids are, they're clever. 
if they sense weakness, I don't mean to like say bad things about kids. I'm just saying it's like blood in the water, friends. They go after it, all right? They, their strategy, divide and conquer. I remember I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I knew if I ever pitted one parent's word against the other, I was going to get like double punishment. You just can't do that. You know what I'm saying? You go to the one parent, you know one of the two of them that might be a little softer on that particular topic, and you go, and mom said that I could, or dad said, it's like, yeah, don't do that. That was if I ever were working them against, you know, the ends against the middle or whatever, that's a bad idea. So aside from all that, just that they see you united, that's huge, that's important. Whatever difference you have, it's important to work it out as best you can behind closed doors, but it's hard to do. All right, number two, these are main themes. Parents must lead, children must follow. Parents must command, children must obey. It's sad to say this these days, but people are so afraid of authoritarianism and tyranny and oppression and abuse that parents are squeamish about commanding their kids. And we see in, in the secular world all kinds of bizarre manifestations of a child-run home. Bizarre. I've seen it out in public. I've seen the reasoning and negotiation going on with a four-year-old at Walmart. But then there's that proverb about getting involved in a quarrel, not your own. is like grabbing a dog by the ears. Like, just keep walking. Pray. <laughs> Don't give parenting hints. You know, I was just in a BFL class, oh, and Sunday school class. And, and, you know, and you're like down talking to them. And they're like, who are you? <laughs> so just keep walking. But all I'm saying is, it seems we are an anti-authoritarian age and an anti-authoritarian people, and that can affect badly our parenting so that we actually aren't confident in just setting up how it's going to be. But the toddler years, the early years are excellent for saying, this is what you're going to eat, this is what you're going to wear, this is what you're going to read today. After you get done reading, you're going to play with these blocks. No, not those blocks, these blocks, etc. That's what they need, and that's what you can do, and you're training yourself too. Now, I do believe one of the hardest things with parenting is the dimmer switch of turning that off as they get older and older until it's the last little bit and they're free. They're, they are, they're, they're making their own decisions and you're just praying for them. They're completely independent. That's hard. That angle of dimmer switch on, on like the essential difference, I think, in our relationship with our grown married kids, the most important is that we have no right to command. Does that make sense? We no longer, no longer have the right to command. But with the minor children, we have not only the right, but the responsibility to command. But it's different for Daphne at age 14 than it was Daphne at age two. So there's that dimmer switch. But for the, just the basic principle here is we have a right and responsibility to command, and we must do it. Tell you what, let me just, I, I'll, I'm, we'll, we'll dig back into these next week, but let me read across all of the themes and just say a word about them because you only have five minutes left. Third theme, children are a blessed gift from the Lord. So enjoy these years. Don't be so heavy that you miss. I mean, it's fun. There's laughter. There's happiness. There's joy. So just enjoy them. There's so many Bible verses on children are a blessing from the Lord. They are a blessing. All right? I got a lot of things to say, but we'll, we'll talk about it next week. Fourth, children are a stewardship from the Lord. And they are infinitely more his than they are yours. He knit them together in the mother's womb. You didn't do any knitting. I mean, you, you did, probably did knitting. I don't know, but yarn, not the, not the body of the child. God knit them together in the mother's womb. They belong to God. For from him and through him and back to him are these children. They are his. And so that's freeing and it's also restraining. You're restrained from tyranny and abuse. You're freed from, you know, converting them and sanctifying them. You can't do that. I planted the seed, Apollo's water, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. We cannot make them obey. We cannot make them anything. You can just do physical things with them, pick them up when they're little and put them in another place. Um, but, etc. They are stewardship, and we're going to give them an account. Fifth, parenting is the most effective evangelism in the world. There is no more effective category of evangelism than parent to child. Any category of evangelism you can think of, such as street evangelist or whatever, we'll talk about all this next time. Nothing is even close. But keep in mind, no evangelism 
is 100% effective. It's effective for what God wants. I mean, God wants different things. You know, he's working out two different purposes in the world. You know, he's showing mercy or he's hardening. But what I'm saying is, in terms of bringing people to Christ, parent a child is, so that's huge. That's a big responsibility, but it's pretty awesome and sweet as well. These are just main themes. Children have tender hearts without a history of sin. So what that means is there's a lot of blank slate there. There's a lot of things that they're, and, and part of our job is to take advantage of that. They don't have to become converted and become like little children. They're already little children. So that feeds into the previous point. But it, it's very, very helpful that they have, you know, amiable tendencies that help train them and evangelize them and lead them. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, G, whatever number G corresponds to. Six, seven, five. I don't know. It's not five. Anyway, children grow quickly like a dimmer switch. Time is flying by and it will pass quickly. Um, so therefore, the next one's obvious. Time is short, but don't panic. All right. It's short, but we got, we got time if God wills. And we'll talk about that in a minute in, John, in James 4. Your life is a mist. It's a vapor. It appears for a little while, but make the most of the time. Establish spiritual patterns in the family. We'll talk about this next week. So family devotions, yes, but other spiritual patterns. Going to church. We go to church. We just do that. We serve at church. We don't just go. They're just patterns you establish. And then discipline. We're going to talk about that. Uh, the, the discipline um, responsibilities. The rod. What is the rod? How do we understand that? When do you use it? When does it begin? When does it end? Are there other forms of the rod? Uh, you know, when they're teenagers, this is for early years, but just seeing where we're going on discipline, on dealing with sin, we'll talk about all that. So the Calvin and Hobbes thing, uh, we'll look at it next week. It's pretty funny, but that's about obeying all the way, right away with a happy spirit. Um, so Matt, would you uh, close in prayer? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.